Welcome to One of Those Times in a Life, sharing songs and stories around the virtual campfire. At this campfire, when Johnny comes marching home. When Johnny comes marching home again, Haru, Haru, we'll give him a hearty welcome then, Haru, Haru. The men will cheer and the boys will shout, the ladies, they will all turn out and we'll all be gay when Johnny comes marching home. One of the things about exploring a life making a journey around a life, a journey like this one, is the different perspectives one gets, trying to make sense of things, put things together that happened over 40 years ago, connecting moments and events that didn't appear to have or couldn't have any relationship at the time. It feels very much that way when I look back at the Brothers Four performing for homecoming at the University of Washington the weekend of November 15th, 1969. Simon and Garfunkel had performed for Homecoming the year before, and I'd returned to in the fall of 68 for my senior year in college. After a summer as a social worker in New York City, our college singing group had also appeared and won a round of your All-American College show, a national talent search that summer. I also held on to a dream of becoming a doctor like my dad, I'd taken the MCAT, the medical college admission test, the spring of 68, and I'd had applications for a dozen schools in, although organic chemistry and the competition for medical school spots made it sort of an unlikely dream. So I thought about returning to New York to continue social work, or maybe trying my luck in L.A. for music for a year or two. For the most part, I had the vague dreams and the ambitions and imaginings of a lot of 21-year-old 20, kids. And while it didn't feel like an aimless time, I definitely was going off in a lot of different directions without a plan or purpose. Because someone in our fraternity was in charge of entertainment for homecoming, he asked if I wanted to pick up Simon and Garfunkel at the airport on Friday afternoon before the alumni show and drop them off after the, con after the student concert on Saturday night. <laughs> you bet I would. Their flight was delayed on Friday, so they made other arrangements to get to the venue, but as the Saturday night concert was winding down, I was standing backstage with their manager and a couple of suitcases getting ready to take them to the airport. We were looking up at the stage when, as casually as I could, I asked the manager if he had any tips about how I might get into show business. And he looked first at me, and then at the stage, and finally at the suitcases. When the music stops, he said, when the lights come up and the audience is finished clapping, pick up those suitcases and start walking as fast as you can to the car. And the funniest part of the story is that the manager was Mort Lewis, also the manager of the Brothers Four. And when I met him again in New York City as a member of the Brothers Four, he couldn't believe the coincidence, and he continued to tell that story for years about the great advice he gave me. And one of the things that made the story even more wonderful is that when he was a kid, growing up in Minneapolis, Mort Lewis talked himself backstage with a Stan Kenton band, and when they were getting ready to leave town, he convinced them that he'd be great at carrying their suitcases. And that's how Mort got his start in show business. When 
with your legs that used to run, Haru, Haru. With your legs that used to run, Haru, Haru. With your legs that used to run when first you went and carried a gun. Indeed, your dancing days are done. Johnny, I hardly knew. One of the things that changed significantly between November of 1968 and November a year later was America's evolving involvement and Americans' mood toward the Vietnam War. Richard Nixon was elected president in November of 1968, in part because he promised the American people that he had a secret plan for peace. In April of 1969, as a way of holding the new president to his promise, Jerome Grossman, known to this day as the relentless liberal, called for a general strike if the war was not over by the fall. That ultimatum led to the moratorium peace demonstration on the 15th of October. As it turned out, I was in Washington, D.C. that week, and I took part in that march. I remember how peaceful it was and how hopeful we felt and how we all sang, even Kumbaya, without a bit of irony, along with songs like We Shall Overcome. I remember the candles that so many of us carried, along with the lasting memory of watching someone kneeling at the gates of the White House as the candle wax melted onto his wrists and forearms. The idea was that people would gather peacefully on the 15th of every month until the war was over. It was a naive faith that would be tested a few weeks later when Seymour Hirsch, the same reporter who wrote about Abu Ghraib 35 years later, published the first public account of the My Lai Massacre. It was hard to swallow and harder to digest that Americans could treat other human beings the way it was depicted in Hirsch's story. Over 500 civilians many of them unarmed women and children murdered by American servicemen. The next April, it was reported that Nixon's secret peace plan had somehow morphed into secret wars in Laos and Cambodia. And on May 4th, four young Americans protesting those wars were gunned down by other young Americans wearing National Guard uniforms. Two more students were killed at Jackson State 10 days later. And so it was in November of 1969 that America was increasingly becoming a house divided as the Brothers Four prepared to perform for homecoming at the University of Washington. And when your eyes that were so mild, Haru, Haru, when your eyes that were so mild, Haru, Haru, when your eyes that were so mild, when my poor heart you first beguiled Why did you run from me and the child Johnny I hardly knew That November the University of Washington was an institution divided as well. One of the highlights of homecoming weekend it's always been the football game with students and alumni cheering as one in this case against the team that was from Southern California. 
But that season, there had been suspensions of African-American players showing support for one of their own, followed by shows of support by alumni for Jim Owens, the head coach, who a decade earlier had restored the luster of West Coast football with two Rose Bowl victories and was now suffering through what would be a one-win season. Ken Ballinger was a captain of that 1969 team. He and I had been co-captains on the freshman football team in the fall of 65 for the cross-state rivalry game against Washington State. And as someone who left college sports after one year, it was a continuing education for me to watch politics played out now on those playing fields. And Bob Hope, the homecoming headliner, added his voice to the cacophony that weekend after years of simply being recognized as a universally beloved comedian and movie star, he and others like John Wayne were more and more making public patriotic proclamations that often included disdainful put-downs of those who thought or acted differently than they, which on that weekend would include me. My protest on Friday night for the alumni and Saturday for the students incorporated a black armband and a passionate anti-war rendition of When Johnny Comes Marching Home. My respect for the other three brothers increasing then as they stood with me in quiet solidarity. You haven't an arm, you haven't a leg, hoodoo, hoodoo. You haven't an arm, you haven't a leg, hoodoo, hoodoo. You haven't an arm and you haven't a leg You're an eyeless boy as chickens ate And you have to be put in a cup to beg Can anyone tell me why? Johnny, I hardly If in the fall of 1969 the country was becoming a house divided and homecomings increasingly divisive, that time for me personally revealed much that I could not reconcile. Beginning with learning a few months earlier that a man I idolized, my dad, had been in a mental institution when I was born. It was a piece I could not make fit. In Northern Ireland, they called it peace and reconciliation. In South Africa, truth and reconciliation. In each case, it was a country long divided, looking for ways to get past their often bloody past and stand together on common ground. I believe with individuals, as well as nations, there can be no reconciliation without truth and no peace without reconciliation. And so I am grateful for one of those times in a life where on so many levels I'm finally able to reconcile the often irreconcilable, to know where the truth lies, and so know that peace abides, hoping that songs and stories and campfires offer warmth and light to anyone finding their way back home. out the guns again, Haru, Haru. They're rolling out the guns again, Haru, Haru. They're rolling out the guns again, 
but they'll never take my sons again. No, they'll never take my sons again. Johnny, I'm swearing to Some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. But if I had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is all so great and would suffice. Thanks for sharing one of those times in a life. At the next campfire, when John Denver opened for the Brothers Four, hope to see you then. <laughs>